Section 12 of Tongues of Conscience by Robert Hitchens. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recorded by Lisa Reichert. The Cry of the Child, Part 1. The Dead Child, Continued. He did not meet her until the evening of the following Sunday, when, as usual, he went to supper at the rectory. Lily was better and had been to church. The canon was delighted and thanked Maurice for his skill in diagnosis and in treatment. "'You cure everyone,' he said. Lily and Maurice exchanged a glance. He saw how well she understood, that he felt the words to be an irony, though they were uttered so innocently. After supper, just as the canon, with his habitual Sunday sigh of satisfaction, was beginning to light his pipe, Sarah the parlour-maid came in with a note. The canon read it, and his sigh moved onwards to something not unlike a groan. He put his filled pipe down on the mantelpiece. "'What is it, father?' asked Lily. "'Miss Bigelow,' he replied laconically. "'On a Sunday. Oh, it's too bad.' "'It can't be helped,' the canon said. "'Excuse me, Dale, I have to go out. But stay, I shall be back in half an hour.' And he went out into the hall, took his coat and hat, and left the house. Miss Bigelow was his cross. She was a rich invalid, portentously delicate, full of benefactions to the parish and fears for the welfare of her soul. She kept the canon's charities going royally, but, in return, she claimed the canon's ghostly ministrations at odd times, to an extent that sometimes caused the good man's saintly equanimity to totter. Hating doctors and loving clergymen, Miss Bigelow was forever summoning her distracted father-confessor to speed that parting guest, her soul, which, however, never departed. She remarked in confidence to those about her that she had endured a dozen deathbeds. The canon had sat beside them all. He must now take his way to the thirteenth. As soon as the hall door banged, Maurice looked up at Lily. "'Poor dear father,' she murmured. "'I am glad,' Maurice said abruptly. The remark might have been called rude, but it was so simply made that it had the dignity belonging to any statement of plain truth. Neither rude nor polite, it was merely a cry of fact from an overburdened human soul. Lily felt that the words were forced from the young doctor by some strange agitation that fought to find expression. "'You wish, you wish,' she began. Then she stopped. The flood of expression that welled up in her companion's face frightened her. She trembled at the thought of the hidden thing, the force that could loose such a sea. "'What is it?' she said like a schoolgirl, or so a moment afterwards she feared. "'I ought not to tell you,' Maurice said. "'I ought not, but I must, I must.' He had got up and was standing before her. His back was to the fire, and a shadow was over his face. "'I want to tell you. You have made me want to. Why is that?' He spoke as if he were questioning his own intellect for the reason, not asking it of her, and she did not try to answer his question. "'I suppose,' he continued, "'it is because you are the only human being who has partially understood that there is something wrong with me that sets me apart from all my kind, from all others.' "'With you,' Lily said. She felt horribly frightened and yet strong and earnest. "'Yes, with me,' he answered. I told you that I was a haunted man. Miss Alston, can you, will you bear to hear what it is that is with me, and why it comes? 
It is a story that, perhaps, your father might forbid you to read. I don't know. And if it was fiction, perhaps he would be right. But, but, I think, I wonder, you might help me. I can't see how, but I feel... He faltered suddenly and seemed for the first time to become self-conscious and confused. Tell me, please, Lily said. She felt rather as if she were beginning to read some strange French story by night. Maurice still stood on the hearth. It is a sound that is with me, he said. Only that, never anything else but that. A sound, she repeated. She thought of their conversation about the bells. Yes, it is a cry. The cry of a child. Yes? That's nothing, you think? Absurd for a man to heed such a trifle? Why do you think it comes? Maurice hesitated. His eyes searched the face of the little girl with an almost hard gaze of scrutiny, as if it were trying to sum up the details of her nature. Long ago, before I came here, before I was qualified, I was cruel, bitterly cruel to a child, he said at last, speaking now very coldly and distinctly. His eyes were on Lily. Had she made just then any movement of horror or of disgust, had an expression betokening fear of him come into her eyes, Maurice knew that his lips would be sealed, that he would bid her good-night and leave her. But she only looked more intent, more expectant. He went on. I was bitterly cruel to my own child, he said. Then Lily moved suddenly. Maurice thought she was going to start up. If she had intended to, she choked the impulse. Was she shocked? He could not tell. She had turned her face away from him. He wondered why, but he did not know that those last words had given to Lily an abrupt and fiery insight into the depths of her heart. At that time, Maurice said, still speaking very distinctly and quietly, I was desperately ambitious. I was bitten by the viper whose poison, stealing through all of man's veins, is emulation. My only desire, my only aim in life, was to beat all the men of my year, to astonish all the authorities of the hospital to which I was attached, by the brilliance of my attainments and my achievements. I was ambition incarnate. And such mad ambition is the most cruel thing in the world. And my child interfered with my ambition. It cried. How it cried! He was becoming less definitely calm. It cried through my dreams, my thoughts, my endeavours, my determinations. Do you know what a weapon, a sound can be, Miss Alston? Perhaps not. A sound can be like a sword and pierce you, like a bludgeon and strike you down. A little sound can nestle in your life and change all the colour and all the meaning of it. The cry of the living child was terrible to me, I thought then. But then I had never heard the cry of the dead child. You see, I wanted to forget something, and the tiny cry of the child recalled it. There were no words in the cry, and yet there were words, so it seemed to me, telling over a past history, this history. Well, I want to say to you. Lily had now put a guard on watch over against her impulsive nature. When Maurice stopped speaking, she was able to look towards him again and murmur, 
Say all you want to. Thank you, he said almost eagerly. If you knew, Miss Alston, before this time, when I was a very young student, I had fallen into one of the most fatal confusions of youth. I had made a mistake as to the greatest need of my own nature. I had, for a flash of time, thought my greatest need was love. And it wasn't, the girl said with a note of wonder in her voice. No, it was success, to outstrip my fellows. But I thought it was love, and I followed my thought, and I sacrificed another to my thought. My child's mother died, almost in giving her to me, and, in dying, made me promise to keep the child always with me. I kept that promise. I was a young student, very poor. My love had been secret. Now I was alone with this helpless child. I left my own lodgings and took others. I brought it there, and its presence obliged me to shut my doors against my own family and against my friends. To keep the door shut, I put forward the excuse of my ambition. I said that I was giving myself up to work, and I shut myself in with the child. I was its nurse as well as its father. I thought I should be sufficient for it. But it missed her, whom I scarcely missed. You had not loved her? Maurice bent his head. I had made a mistake, as I said. I had only thought so. Long before she died, I had almost hated her for crippling my ambition. She was swept out of my path, but the child was left crying for her. Yes, I know. Its wail came eternally between me and my great desire. When I sat down to work, the sound, which I could not quiet, perplexed my brain. When I lay down to get, in sleep, power for fresh work, it struck through my dreams. I heard it when the stars were out over London, and in the dawn, when from my lodging windows I could see the first light on the Thames. Miss Alston, at last, it maddened me. Lily was pale. She scarcely knew of what she was expectant. I had tried to comfort the child. I had failed. Now I determined to forget it, to shut it out from my working life. At last, by force of will, I almost succeeded. I read, I wrote, I analyzed the causes of disease, the results of certain treatments as opposed to the results of others. And sometimes I no longer heard my child, no longer knew whether it wailed and wept, or whether it was silent. But one evening... Maurice stopped. His face was very white, and his eyes burned with excitement. One evening, he repeated, speaking almost with difficulty, and with the obstinate note in his voice of one telling a secret half against his will and better judgment. I could not work. The wail of the child was so loud, so alarmed, so full of fear that seemed to my imagination intelligent, and based on a knowledge of something I did not know, that my professional instinct was aroused. At first I listened, sitting at my writing-table. Then I got up and softly approached the folding doors. Beyond them, in the dark, the child lamented like one to whom a nameless horror draws near. Never had I known it to weep like this, for this was no cry after a mother, no cry of desire, no cry even of sorrow. It was a half-strangled scream of terror. I did not go into the room, but I listened. I knew. 
he faltered. Yes, Lily said. As I listened, I knew what the cry meant. Miss Alston, is it not strange that even a baby who scarcely knows life knows so well death? Death? Yes, recognizes its coming, shrinks from it, fears it with the terror of a clear intelligence. Is it not very strange? Death, Lily repeated. She, too, was pale. Maurice continued in a low voice. I understood the meaning of the cry, and I did not enter the inner room. No, I walked back to my writing-table, put my hands over my ears to deaden the cry, and gave myself again to work. How long I worked I don't know, but presently I heard a loud knocking at the door of my room. I sprang up and opened it. My landlady stood outside. "'What do you want?' I asked. The good woman's face was grave. "'Sir, I know that child must be ill,' she said. "'Ill? Why? What do you mean?' "'Oh, sir, it's crying is awful. It goes right through me.' I pushed the woman out almost roughly. "'It is not ill,' I said. "'It is only restless. Leave me. Don't you see I am working?' And I shut the door sharply. I sat down again at my table and toiled till dawn. I remember that dawn so well. At last my brain had utterly tired. I could work no longer. I pushed away my papers and got up. The room was misty, so I thought, with a flickering grey light. The dirty white blind was drawn half up. I looked out over the river, and from it I heard the dull shout of a man on a black barge. This shout recalled me to my child and the noise of its lament. I listened. All was silent. There was no murmur from the inner room. And then I remember that suddenly the silence, from which I had so often longed and prayed, frightened me. It seemed full of a dreadful meaning. I waited a moment. Then I walked softly across the room to the folding doors. They were closed. I opened them furtively and looked into the bedroom. It was nearly dark. Approaching the bed, I could scarcely discern the tiny white heap which marked where the child lay among the tumbled bedclothes. I bent down to listen to the sound of its breathing. I could not hear the sound. Then I caught the child in my arms and carried it over to the sitting-room window so that the dawn might strike upon its little face. The face was discoloured. The heart was not beating. Miss Alston, while I worked, my child had died in a convulsion. It had striven against death, poor feeble baby, and it had no help from its father. My medical skill might have eased its sufferings, might have saved it, but I had deliberately closed my ears to its appeal for love, for assistance. I had let it go. I should never hear it again. Maurice had spoken the last words with excitement. Now he paused. With an obvious effort he controlled himself, and added calmly, I buried my child and gave myself again to work. My examination was close at hand. I passed it brilliantly. But I shuddered at my success. Those lodgings by the river had become horrible to me. I left them, took a practice in a remote Cumberland valley, and withdrew myself from the world, from all who had known me. In this retirement, however, I had a companion of whose presence at first I was unaware. 
the dead child followed me the child of whom now i feel myself to have been the murderer no no not that lily whispered but he did not seem to hear her one night he continued in my lonely house in the valley i was awakened by some sound i sat up in bed and listened all was black around me and at first all was quiet too i lay down again to sleep but as i touched the pillow i heard a faint murmur that seemed to come from far away i said to myself that it was a fancy of my mind but again it came then i thought it was the wind caught in some cranny of my house i opened my window and leaned out but there was no wind in the trees what was the noise then the cry of a bird perhaps yes it must be that yet did any note of a bird have a thrill of pain in it i hurried on some clothes and let myself out into the garden i would hear that bird again i would convince myself of its presence but in the garden i could hear nothing save the thin murmur of the stream that threaded the valley so i returned to the house and at the door i was greeted by a little cry from within miss alston it was the cry of my dead child full of pain and of eternal reproach i shut the door closing myself in with my fate and since that night i have been a haunted man scarcely a day has passed since then scarcely a night has gone by without my hearing that appeal for help which once i disregarded which now i can never reply to i fled from the valley in a vain hope of leaving that voice behind me i came here but the child's spirit is here too it is for ever with me he stopped abruptly then he added i can even hear it now while i look at you while i touch your hand his burning eyes were fixed on lily's face his burning hand closed on hers as if seeking assistance what am i to do he said and for the first time his voice broke and failed pray she whispered i have prayed but god forgives only those who reverse their evil acts mine can never be reversed i can never be kind to my child to whom i have been bitterly cruel there is no help for me none yet i had a feeling that that you might help me if i could the girl cried with a blaze of sudden eagerness her heart leaped up at the words leaped up from its depth of pity for maurice to a height of almost fiery enthusiasm but how he said then his face hardened and grew stern no he said there can be no help for me none in this world the drawing-room door opened and the canon appeared miss bigelow has not died for the thirteenth time he said coming up to the fire when the canon kissed his daughter that night after maurice dale had gone home he seemed struck by a new expression in her face why how excited you look child he said what is it but lily returned his kiss hastily and ran away without a word once in her room she locked the door for no reason except that she must mark the night by some unwanted action put on her dressing-gown and threw herself down on her bed her mind was alive with thoughts her imagination was in flames for so much had come upon her that evening in the first place she understood that she loved maurice she knew that when he spoke the words my child 
and jealousy of an unknown woman struck like some sharp weapon to her heart. She realized that he did not love her, yet so great was her simple unselfishness that she did not dwell on the knowledge, or blame for an instant the selfishness which concentrated Maurice's mind so entirely upon himself and his own sorrow. Her only anxiety was how to help him. Her only feeling was one of tender pity for his agony, and yet for Lily was a girl of many fancies, and full of the willful side-thoughts of women, she found room in her nature for a high-flown sense of personal romance which now wrapped her round in a certain luxury of complacency. She moved in a strange story that was true, a story that she might have read with a quickening of the pulses. She and Maurice, whom she loved, moved in it together, heroine and hero of it, and none knew the story but themselves. And then she burst into silent tears, calling herself cruel for having this moment of half-joy in the tragedy of another. She pushed down into the depths of Maurice's misery, and then, with a clearer mind, she sat up on the bed. It was dead of night now. Was he listening in the silence to that haunting cry that was destroying him? She wondered breathlessly, and she recalled the conversation about the bells. Was Matthias truly haunted, or was he mad? She asked herself that, putting Maurice eventually behind footlights in his place. Was there really a veritable cry allowed to come out of the other world to Maurice? Or did his diseased brain work out his retribution? She could not tell. Indeed, she scarcely cared just then. In either event, the result upon him was the same, and was terrible. In either event, the outcome might be what she dared not name even to herself. And, though he did not love her, he turned to her for help. Lily flushed in the thought of this, almost more than if she had his heart, it seemed, to have his cry for assistance. She must answer it effectually. She must. But how? And then she sprang up and began to pace the room. How to help him? Slowly, and with a minute examination, she went in memory through his story, with its egoism, its cruelty, its ambition, its punishment, its childlike helplessness of to-night, and of many nights. She recalled each word that he had spoken, until she came to almost the last. I have prayed, but God forgives only those who reverse their evil acts. Mine can never be reversed. I can never be kind to my child. Just there she stopped. Maurice's words flew against what Lily's religion taught her of the great being, who can pardon simply and fully, so long only as the sinner entirely and deeply repents. But she accepted them as true for Maurice. There was the point to be faced. She felt that his nature, haunted indeed, or betrayed by its own weakness, but still loved by her, could only be restored to peace if he could fulfil the impossible, reverse, as he expressed it, the act of his past. Ah, that cry of the little dying helpless child, of his little child! Lily could almost hear it, too. The tears came into her eyes. How could she still it? How could she lay the little spirit to rest forever? Peace for child, peace for father, sinned against and sinner. She felt she would gladly sacrifice her own life, 
her own peace, to work the miracle of comfort on dead and living. Yes, she could give up her love if— Suddenly Lily threw herself down on her bed and buried her burning face deep in the pillows. A thought had come to her, so strange that she wondered whether it were not wicked. The hot red colour surged over her with this thought, and all the woman in her quivered as she asked herself whether, in this life of sorrows and of abnegations, it could ever be that the grief and the terror of another could be swept away by one who, in the endeavour to bring solace, must obtain intense personal happiness. In books it is ever self-sacrifice that purges and persuades, martyrdom of the senses that renews and relieves. Lily was ready indeed to be a martyr for the man she loved, but the strange way she saw of being his possible saviour lay only in a light of the sun for ever on herself. She wept and saw the light, herself and Maurice walking in it together, till the church bell chimed in the morning, and the tide came up in the sunshine to murmur that it was day. Maurice Dale was puzzled. He noticed a change in Lily so marked that even his self-centred nature could not fail to observe it. This girl, whom he had thought pretty, fanciful, tender-hearted, and gently sympathetic, who had attracted his confession by her quick and feminine receptiveness, now seemed developed into a woman of strength and purpose, full of calm and of dignity. Her shining eyes were more steadfast than of old. Her manner was less changeful, less enthusiastic, but more reliant. Brayfield wondered what had come to Miss Alston. Maurice wondered, too dating the transformation accurately from the night when he unburdened his soul in search of the help which, after all, no human being could give to him. It was strange, he thought, that a man's terror, a man's weakness, should endow a weak girl with confidence and with power. It was too strange, and he laughed at himself for supposing that he had anything to do with the new manifestation of Lily's nature. Nevertheless, she began to attract him more than he had believed possible. The nightmare in which his life was encircled grew less real when he was with her. There was virtue in her that went out to him. He came to desire always to be with her, and yet he could not say to himself that he loved her with the passion of man for woman. Rather was the desire that he felt for her like that of a criminal towards a place of refuge of a coward towards an asylum of safety. Sometimes he longed that she might share his trouble, selfishly longing that in her ears might ring the cry of pain that tormented his. One day, when they were together on a down that overlooked the sea, he told her this. "'I wish it too,' she answered softly. "'You are all unselfishness, as I am all selfishness,' he said, condemning himself, and nearer to loving her than ever before." The sails went by along the wintry sea, and the short afternoon faded quickly into twilight, that was cold in its beauty like a pale primrose in frost. They were descending slowly towards the little town that lay beneath them in the shadows. "'I have no voice to trouble my life, no dead voice, that is,' Lily said. "'No dead voice?' Maurice asked. "'And the living?' Oh, in most lives there is some one voice that means almost too much, Lily answered slowly. Maurice stopped. 
"'Whose voice means so much to you?' he said. "'Why do you care to ask?' "'Is it mine?' The girl had stopped too. Her face was set towards the sea and its great sincerity, which murmurs against the lies and the deceptions of many lives that defile the land, and takes so many more to itself that they may persist no longer in their evil doing. And perhaps it was her vision of the sea that swept from Lily any desire to be a coquette, or to be maidenly, that is, false. She looked from the sea into Maurice's eyes. Yes, she answered, it is yours. You love me then, Lily? Yes, I love you, Maurice. There was no tremor in her voice, there was no shame in her eyes. Alone in her chamber on the night of Maurice's confession, she had flushed and trembled. Now she stood before him and made this great acknowledgment simply and fearlessly. And yet she knew that he did not love her with the desire of a man to the woman whom he chooses out of the world to be his companion. She was moved by a resolve that was very great to ignore all that girls think most of at such a moment. Maurice took a step towards her. How true and how strong she looked. I dare not ask you to share my life, he said. It is too shadowed, too sad. I have not the right. If you will ask me, I will share it. She put her hand into his. He felt as if her soul lay in it. They walked on. Already the evening was dark around them. Canon Alston was a little surprised, merely because he was a father, and fathers are always a little surprised when men love their children. But he liked Maurice heartily, and gave his consent to the marriage. Miss Bigelow ordered a valuable wedding present, and resolved to live until over the marriage day at least and Brayfield gossiped and gloried in possessing a legitimate cause for excitement. As for Lily, she was strangely happy with a happiness far different from that of the usual betrothed young girl. She loved Maurice deeply. Nevertheless, she did not blind herself to the fact that he was still unhappy, restless, self-engrossed, and often terror-stricken, although he tried to appear more confident than of old and to assume a gaiety suitable to his situation in the eyes of the world. She knew he could never be entirely free to love so long as the cry of the child rang in his ears. And he told her that, strangely enough, since their engagement, it had become more importunate. Once he even tried to break their contract. "'I cannot link my life with another's,' he said desperately. "'Who knows?' When you are one with me, you may be haunted as I am. That would be too horrible. It was a flash of real and heartfelt unselfishness. Lily felt herself thrill with gratitude, but she only said, I am not afraid. On another occasion, this was about a month after they became engaged, Maurice said, Lily, when shall we be married? She glanced up at him and saw that he was paler even than usual and that his face looked drawn with fatigue. "'Whenever you wish,' she answered. "'Let it be soon,' he said, and then he broke out almost despairingly. "'I cannot bear this much longer. Lily, what can it mean? There is something too strange. Ever since you and I have been betrothed, the curse that is laid upon me has been heavier. The cry of the child has been more incessantly with me. I hear it more plainly.' 
It is nearer to me. It is close to me. In the night sometimes I start up, thinking the child is even beside me on the pillow, complaining to me in the darkness. I stretch out my hand. I feel for its little body. But there is nothing, nothing but that cry of fear, of pain, of eternal reproach. Why does the spirit persecute me now, as it never persecuted me before? Is it because it believes that you will make me happier? Is it because it wishes to deny me all earthly joy? Sometimes I think that, once we are actually husband and wife, the cry will die away. Sometimes I think that then it will never leave me even for a moment. If that were so, Lily, I should die, or I should lose my reason. He covered his face with his hands. He was trembling. Lily put her soft hand against his hands. A great light had come into her eyes as he spoke. "'Let us be married, Maurice,' she said. "'Perhaps the little child wants me.' He looked up at her, and his dark eyes seemed to pierce her, hungry for help. "'Wants you?' he said. "'How can that be?' "'No, no. It cries against my thought of happiness, against my desire for peace.' "'We must give it peace. We must lay it to rest.' No one can do that. If I have not the power to redeem my deed of wickedness, how can you, how can anyone living redeem it for me? Lily looked away from him. Her cheeks were burning with a blush. A tingling fire seemed to run through all her veins and her pulses beat. There is some way of redemption for everyone, she said. But he answered gloomily, Your religion teaches you to say that, Lily, perhaps to believe it. But there is no way. The dead cannot return to earth that we may give them tenderness instead of our former cruelty. No, no. Maurice, trust me. Let us be married soon. That night, before she went to bed, Lily knelt down and prayed until the night was old. She asked what thousands of women have asked since the world was young. But surely never woman before had so strange a reason for her request and when at length she rose from her knees, she felt that time must bring the gift she had prayed for, unselfishly, and with her whole heart. A month afterwards, on a bright spring morning, Maurice and Lily were married. It was a great occasion for Brayfield. The church was elaborately decorated by the many young ladies who had secretly longed to be the brides of the interesting doctor. Crowds assembled within and without the building, Miss Bigelow rose from her fourteenth deathbed in a purple satin gown and a bonnet prodigious with feathers, and testified to the possibility of modern resurrection in a front pew. Flowers, rice, wedding marches filled the air, but people remarked that the bridegroom looked like a man who went in fear. Even when he was on the doorstep of the church, in the throng of curious sightseers, he moved almost as one whom a dream attends who sees the pale figures, who hears the faint voices that inhabit and make musical a vision of the night. The bride, too, had no radiant air of a young girl, fulfilling her girlish destiny, and giving herself up to a protector, to one stronger, more able to fight the world, than a woman who loves and fears. Her face, too, was pale and grave, even, some thought, a little stern, as she passed up the church, she glanced at no one, smiled at no friend. 
her eyes were set steadfastly towards the altar where Maurice waited. And when, after the ceremony, she came down the church to the sound of music, her eyes were fixed on her husband. She took no heed of anyone else, for her hand pressed upon his arm, felt that he was trembling, and her ears seemed to hear through all the jubilant music, through all the murmur of the gazing crowd, a cry far away, yet more distinct than any sound of earth, thin, piercing, full of appeal to her, the spirit cry of the child. End of section 12